Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. It's all about relationship and reciprocity. You know, you can't have relationship if you don't interact. For me and for my generation, there is a certain level of anxiety about, you know, will I be able to save enough to put down that foundation of security. The reality is that the younger generation today, in many cases, is facing a harder financial equation than the older generation. I'm Noelle McCarthy. This is A Wrinkle in Time. A Wrinkle in Time. A Wrinkle in Time. I didn't expect to be working when I was 67. I visualised that I'd be retiring when I was 65, but anyway, opportunities arose and here I am. A podcast series about ageing in a world that wants us to stay young. Look for a job where you're not on your feet all day. When digging a hole, know when to throw away the shovel. Everyone's pretending they know what they're doing. The wisdom of age, it may be a cliché, but I've never gotten so many tweets as when I asked for the best advice your granny or granddad ever gave you. Judge a person from the chin up. Ignore everything before the but. KFC doesn't freeze well. Wisdom might just be a fancier word for experience, but over time it accumulates. And one of the best things about having experience is getting to share it. If you look back for too long, you'll get a stiff neck. Stir liquids like paint and soup in a figure of eight and you mix it really well. Pace yourself, love. Since I became a grandmother two and a half years ago, I realised that that's not my story. I'm a little piece of that story and I pop in and out of that narrative. But I'm playing not a central role to it. I'm, I'm a supporting character. And, and, so, and that's a really nice different role to play. The role of a grandparent varies from family to family. Some are very hands-on in raising their grandchildren. Others are more about the treats and the giggles. What you do, you spoil your grandchildren rotten and as soon as they get all silly and crazy, you give them back to the parents. I see that's the revenge of finally <laughs> finally getting getting it back now. Nate Hine Farmer and father of 13, Kevin Prime, is well acquainted with the joys of being a koro. It's wonderful being a grandparent and, you know, grandchildren are they, uh, like I think one of my children said to me, oh, what do I want for Christmas? Said, oh, another mokopuna, that would do. How many do you have? Uh, we've got that. 20, I think, 21 maybe at the moment, but we'd, that's only with half the children have started. One of the most attractive prospects in a new era of longer life is that of a truly multi-generational society, one in which young and old mingle fruitfully. And we're not just talking about the grandparent-grandchild relationship here. Can you imagine it? The elders would be invigorated by the energy of the young, the young would be inspired and comforted by the wisdom of their elders. The benefits would be tangible and, crucially, mutual. That's the upbringing that former MP Winnie Laban remembers after her parents came out from Samoa and settled in Wainuiomata. I get worried about this whole ageist thing, you know, that sometimes people say that when you're over 50, you're over the hill. And, uh, but in our culture, the elders are hugely loved and valued and they are an integral 
part of our families. And, um, you know, for example, in some cultures, when you marry somebody, that ends up becoming the primary relationship. But with us, it's very much all ages, and it's the extended family. As Pacifica Vice-Chancellor at Victoria University, Winnie says she's seen the benefits on both sides of generations interacting across the age divide. It's all about relationship and reciprocity. You know, you can't have relationship if you don't interact and you don't communicate. But still very much the elders have a lot of influence over decisions to do with lands, to do with titles, to do with the well-being of the villages. But, you know, there is also an openness, and I detect that with some of my older aunties and uncles, even though a lot of them have died, you know. They love seeing the younger generation come through. And and people like me, the reason why I came to the university and that is because they keep me young. You know, the students. And I see them very much as part of my extended family, all colours and uh, and all cultures. And what I see in, in a lot of my interactions with Samoa, but also the Pacific community, is all ages are always present and all have a place. There was a place for all ages when Kevin Prime was growing up as well, in the tiny settlement of Motatau, midway between Kerikeri and Whangarei. That that always has been something I've noticed, you know, throughout my life. E- even if you had old people sitting in on a hui, a meeting, and didn't say anything, just their presence is enough to know that they endorse what is happening. And if they didn't, they would speak up, you know. So I've always felt that um, throughout throughout my years, anyway, in being. Um, living in a Māori community, it was always uplifting to see that many of the kaumātua and queer just came to meetings, sat there, listened and participated if they were asked, asked but seldom um, contributed. It was just their presence that was enough to lift the mana of the hui. Now in his 70s, Kevin reckons he's never been more in demand in his community. You know, I've found that as soon as people retire, Māori people, they tend to be inundated with work because they're suddenly on, they're almost on call for when there's a tangi, when there's uh, visitors come to Yombrai, so there's a lot more demands on your time. The place of elders is an enshrined ideal in Māori communities. But regardless of background or culture, all the grandparents currently providing daycare, pet care, financial help, chauffeur services, shoulders to cry on, or just good company for children and grandchildren, know that whether you're retired or still working, being a grandparent can involve some hard yards. And as much as different generations have a huge amount to offer each other, it can still be a challenge for one generation to fully relate to another. Because this is the other thing that concerns me, is that with all the technology, people are busy. Yeah. They're far too busy. You know, I like it in, when, when Dad and Mum took us to Samoa when I was 11 and Ken was 10. I like the way that people had time to just sit in the village and talk. And, and share, but now it's like, you know, even things like meal times, you know, they're quite sacred. Like I was brought up, you pray before you eat, and you don't have your phone or your iPad or anything. And what worries me is with that kind of thing happening, it feeds an extreme individualism 
and it discounts people like the elders. Of course, as everyone who Skypes their grandparents from overseas will know, there are also arguments to be made for technology bringing generations closer. But perhaps the speed of change, of technological change, of cultural change, the constant evolution of language, customs, even food and dress is widening those gaps between age groups. For most of human history, things moved so slowly, relatively speaking, that there was a sense of stability. Odds were, if you were born somewhere, you'd die there. If you had one career, you'd stick to it. You might even have inherited it. A recent American survey found 91% of millennials expect to stay in a job for less than three years. Reinvention is happening at great speed, and staying relevant becomes harder especially when learning is no longer transmitted from generation to generation, at your grandmother's knee, so to speak, in the same way that it used to be. There's such a sense of instability, of constant turnover of the new and of innovation, and um, this radically discontinuous sort of cultural life that we have these days uh, is one that makes it very hard to believe in the um, assurance and continuity of the future, because we are always subjected to a series of uh, shocks and concussions that um, make it hard to believe sometimes that everything is going to finally work itself out, stabilize itself, and um, reach deep into the future. You may remember Professor Robert Harrison from Stanford University. We heard from him back in episode one. He says we don't value old age the way we used to, even though there are definite advantages to clocking up the years. There is more time left for the young, but I'm not sure that they live, they live it that way. It's biologically true and it's maybe factually true that their future lies ahead of them. But sometimes psychology is perverse enough that the youthful mindset can be much more entrapped within a present, uh, within the present tense, than uh, people at an older age who actually uh, live within a distended future, even though they have less material chronological time left to their lives. But the pressures facing younger generations aren't merely existential. I asked my colleague Tess how she feels about the future from the vantage point of 25. You know, I'm a millennial, so I come into adult life with already very indebted with a student loan and with um, home ownership seeming like a little bit of a far-off dream as well. So I think for me and for my generation, there is a certain level of anxiety about, you know, will I be able to save enough to put down that foundation of security, a place to live, enough assets to maintain me and retirement. There are big generational differences in terms of how people treat money. Um, On the one hand, you have the generation in America and in many other parts of the Western world that were scarred by the Great Depression. Um, They were obsessed with making sure that their homes were free and clear, i.e. without a mortgage, and very suspicious of borrowing money. Um, Then you had the generation that came to adulthood maturity um, in the middle of the 20th century, the late 20th century, um, who were often much more cynical and calculating about how they used money and subsequently more willing to embrace credit on a large scale. 
What you see today, which is fascinating for the financial services industry, is a generation of people who are very suspicious of traditional banks, um, often very trusting, one might say too trusting, of technology and say prefer to bank on their iPhone than in a traditional bank. So when you do surveys of wealthy um, people who are or kids who are inheriting money from their older generation as they die off in America today, they have very different readings for how they hope to use their money and the benchmarks they're going to use to judge whether they've invested that money well or not. Gillian Tett is an author and a managing editor of the Financial Times based in New York. Her background as an anthropologist gives her an insight into the human as well as the economic issues around getting older. The issue of ageing is always emotional because it's painful to discuss if you are old. Nobody wants to confront their own mortality and weakness. It's um, tough to talk about if you are the child of a parent who's going to get old because you don't want to lose them. But there's also this bigger question about fairness between the generations. And the reality is that the younger generation today, in many cases, is facing a harder financial equation than the older generation. Now, you wrote something which made me want to ask you how you see that tension between baby boomers and younger generations, especially around inheritance and spending. <laughs> you talked about a silver tsunami of unmanageable old people, recipients of free education and plentiful employment, hanging on to jobs and spending the inheritance on Harley Davidson's and Deadly Ponies handbags as they gleefully await Winnie's golden ticket, sitting on their arses on the Waiheke ferry. <laughs> <laughs> it's vivid, Susie. It's vivid. <laughs> Tell me about how you see that tension. Well, I mean, it's appearing quite a bit, and it's around. You know that um, there's so many of us greedy baby boomers around. We're going to spend it all before you guys get here. We met Susie the blogger in episode two. She wrote that blog post with her tongue in her cheek, but she says she is aware of what she calls a light resentment of her generation. Sort of like jokes and, oh, it's all right for you, you were around when education was free and, you know, uh, when you... Well, I left school when I was 15. I mean, we walked into jobs in those days. I mean, you can't do that these days, and people know that. So, yeah, there is a little bit of tension that I notice, but the thing is with the media, they, um, hmm, I sometimes wonder if they're not just reflecting what's going on or sort of winding it up. The greedy baby boomer is a familiar stereotype. You know the one. Part of the luckiest generation in recent history, but unwilling to share even a little bit of that good fortune with younger generations. The ones coming of age in an era of zero job security and the looming spectre of a million dollar median house price. 2018 will be a crunch year, with many of the boomers ageing out of the workforce. Of course, many will keep working. Another recipe for intergenerational tension. We'll talk about it shortly. But the prospect is bearing down on us of hordes of sprightly gold card holders with heaps of spare time and a taste for conspicuous consumption. And so when I was thinking about it and I thought, you know, in my neck of the woods, you know, with the um, 
Because you're in Auckland. We're talking yeah, yeah. in Auckland. Lots <laughs> of Harley Davidsons, yes. Deadly Ponies Men handbags. Men of a certain age, they love a Harley Davidson, some women, and um, a Deadly Pony handbag, of course. And, you know, they all cost a lot of money. And, mm. um, and then there's the ongoing thing that keeps rearing its head about the Waiheke Ferry, how people, yeah. <laughs> those of us with the golden ticket, <laughs> are going to be swanning around on the Waiheke Ferry. Have you been on the Waiheke Ferry this summer? I haven't been on there since I got my golden ticket. For goodness sake, Susie. <laughs> I know. I know I need to get on there. <laughs> but there might be a queue because there'll be lots of there'll people There'll be a queue. There well, it would be interesting to go down there and see. They'll all have silver hair unless they've coloured it like I have. At least it's good news for capitalism, all this travel. Not to mention the late-life fetish for big boys' and girls' toys with hefty price tags. But if you want to get a wider picture of what it means when you begin to get people becoming older, um, if you want to look at it in a more positive way, if you look at America today and see the sheer volume of consumer goods that are now being marketed to older people, or the way that consumer goods which used to be marketed to younger people are now being remodeled, I mean, the Harley-Davidson motorbike is a classic example of that because it used to be associated with being a young, radical rebel. Just think of James Dean. Now you've got Harley-Davidson motorbikes which are actually being marketed to so-called silver surfers and the older generation who like them because they're so big and rugged and they're actually harder to fall off. So consumer companies are adapting very rapidly to these changing consumer tastes and this ageing demographic. Consumer companies may be adapting to the ageing demographic faster than governments. Well, the problem with pensions is that it is a critically important issue that's going to affect economies and public finances for decades to come. But it's one of those stories that I like to call elliptical stories. It doesn't move in dramatic step changes. The tectonic plates of the world shift ever so slightly and they're very easy to ignore until suddenly there's a crisis or an earthquake or whatever metaphor you want to use. Rising pension costs are an inescapable issue as more and more of us live for longer and longer. People and governments have been putting away money for pensions. There simply isn't enough to meet all the promises that have been made. And sooner or later, people are going to wake up and either realise they have to work longer or get fewer pensions, or some institutions will go bust. Future pension costs are an obvious source of intergenerational tension. But better health care and a different attitude towards ageing makes the idea of retiring at 65 increasingly unlikely. I don't expect to be working when I was 67. I, I visualised that I would be retiring when I was 65, but anyway, opportunities arose and here I am. Are you enjoying your career? Yeah, yeah, I love it. I mean, my whole life experience is different to my parents' experience. And um, when I look at my life compared to my mother's at this age, it's vastly different. What was she doing when she was this age, the, the age that you are now? She was at home. She Wait. wasn't working? No, no, she didn't ever work out of the home. Um, she was very involved in the community in various groups, but as she got older and unweller, she just really, after my father died, she just stayed at home and waited, really, I always got the impression. There's no set legal age to retire. And New Zealand has one of the highest employment rates of 65 to 69-year-olds in the OECD. The numbers working on into their 70s is on the rise also. 
Life expectancy expert Professor Alistair Woodward reckons we need a rethink, not only of the pension age, but of our ideas around old age in general. One way of thinking about it, though, is that we might change our definition of old age. You know, you ask people, um, uh, when does old age begin? And we go back to the savage you know, definition, really, at 65 is when you enter old age. Well, uh, when life expectancy is pushing up to 85 and 90, um, you know, that doesn't seem a terribly useful description. So I'm interested in um, this idea that old age is defined not by how many years you've lived, but by how many years lie ahead. Um, and we know that uh, morbidity and ill health and problems with seeing and hearing and so on um, tend to accumulate in the last decade of people's lives. So one way, uh, a dynamic definition of, of old age would be to say, well, at what age do you have, say, 15 years of life expectancy left? And it's true 20 or 30 years ago that that would have been 65, but it's now um, closer to 75 um, and heading north. Uh, and different for everybody. Well, it, it is different for everybody, of course, that's true. Uh, but if you were thinking about a, a sort of working definition, perhaps, of when the pension, when people would claim the pension, um, then uh, an alternative to relying on some fixed figure that's become increasingly um, anachronistic like 65 is, is to relate it to this change in mortality. The challenge with a new definition is that, as we saw in the second episode of this series, we don't all age at the same rate or anything like it. And one of the tragic problems of the day is that it tends to be rich people who are living longer. What that means is that any attempt to raise the retirement age starts to create potential inequalities. And so what most people are realising is that there needs to be some element of optionality about it or some element of giving people choices about whether they want to retire earlier and potentially forsake some of their pension or keep working until later. But what's also very clear is that there's going to have to be compromise on both sides. People who are paying into pension pots today will probably not get as much as they thought or assumed. And at the same time, they're probably going to have to work a bit longer to have any hope of even getting what they had expected. That's reflected here in New Zealand. People might be sticking around in the workplace for longer, but it's not by choice, according to a recent AUT study into the well-being of older workers. As study leader Professor Tim Bentley explains... So we asked them at what age they would ideally retire, and they said about 66 on average. Um, when we asked at what age could you realistically retire, they said about 67 and a half. So there's that one and a half year gap between when they um, like to retire ideally and when they could retire financially. Working in a coal mine, going down, down, down. Working in a coal mine, about to step down. The average age at which workers can realistically expect to retire and the age they would prefer to retire are both older than the traditional retirement age. Staying at work for longer may be more of a necessity than a preference for many of us, but that doesn't mean our younger colleagues are happy about it. They want us to take care, but not too much good care. <laughs> because, you know, the inheritance... But you're still working, so... Yes, I'm still working, but I'm not just talking about me and my family. I'm talking about generally, like, we've used the world up. 
And now there are so many of you and you had all the good times and we've had the hard times and, you know, slow down already. And the other thing is, too, you're still working when you're 67. You know, maybe it's time to move out and make space for a younger person. That kind of thing. Do you ever perceive that in, in a work context? Not in my work context. It happens, though. I've thought it about people. Maybe not everyone is honest enough to admit it, but this thought is understandable, especially in a jobs market that boomers themselves acknowledge is far more competitive than the one they started out in. I think the kids are different. My kids are quite, you know, we're quite close and we do understand where they're coming from uh, for the youth of today because I think the youth of today are under a lot more pressure than what we were back in our day. And we've got to understand that uh, the expectation of our, our youth today is so much higher um, with the expectations put on by the parents or by society itself in general. As you can see, it doesn't matter whether you get a degree or not, if you can't earn more than X, Y, Z per annum, uh, it's still going to be hard to afford to buy a place in Auckland anyway. Former all-black Buck Shelford is in his 50s now with two grown-up children. So, you know, they're after they're chasing the big money, and but, you know, you've got to do the hard yards in the work society are probably... 10, 10 or 15 hard years before we actually earn really, really big, big money. Your daughters and your granddaughter may have a very different experience of, of getting older than mm. you're having. What would you hope for them? Well, my hope for them is there's less pressure. However, my fear, if you call it a fear, um, is there'll be more pressure. I mean, you know how 50 is the new 40. It's probably going to be 50 is the new baby lamb. Maybe that's already happening, depending on where in the world you are. Having moved from London to New York, in London, once you hit the age of 50, 60, people tend to be in maintenance mode and there's a lot of discussion about pensions. Um, that's even more the case in continental Europe. In a place like New York, where there's a much more entrepreneurial and dynamic and, frankly, wealthier um, system, um, people tend to keep assume they're going to keep working for a very long time. So I'm constantly going to dinner parties where I'm meeting people in their 70s and 80s who are still creating things and maybe not working full time, but finding entrepreneurial ways to stay dynamic and presumably to keep earning income too. Back here in New Zealand, most of the people I spoke to in their 50s and even younger are getting ready for the next stage in life. But for, for myself, as heading into not far from retirement, I'm only what, seven years away from retirement, 65, and, and to think that uh, 65, and if I retire, will I be able to afford the rates on the property that I own? All those sorts of things. And so you've got to really do your homework into going into retirement. Bucks a few years off retirement still. Tess, who you heard from earlier, is a few decades off it. But they're doing their homework. And fair enough, in uncertain financial times, with the effects of the GFC still being felt, the fear of being a financial burden on our loved ones at the end of life is very real. Different governments around the world have made very different choices about how they fund their pension scheme. And so at one on the spectrum, you get countries which are primarily um, funded by money put in by the younger generation to finance the older generation. And those, scheme, those um, systems are in many ways more vulnerable now. And then you have some countries where people have been forced to save to a large degree to fund their own pensions. 
Um, and those are also potentially vulnerable because they rely on the value of market-based assets. But um, whatever choice being made, they require very hard conversations between the older and younger generation about who's actually going to finance this aging population and their healthcare costs. Dependency is the darker flip side of reciprocity between the generations. Ageing involves frailty and sickness in the last years and the cost of caring can be huge emotionally as well as in terms of dollars and cents. We'll talk about this a bit more in the next two episodes. Meanwhile, more and more of us are moving into the later decades of life with an evolving mixture of roles. We always actually spend a lot of time with our kids see how the grandkids are going, things like that. And uh, we look after our muckle every Friday uh, just to help out so um, they don't have to pay another day for daycare and all this stuff. The mix may involve juggling family responsibilities with either full or part-time paid work, work that's increasingly stretching out past 65. That can be a source of tension, especially when there's competition for jobs. But everyone I talked to was well aware Life expectancies may be increasing, but nobody is going to be around forever. There's going to be a future uh, that outlives you in a substantial way. And that actually is reassuring because it means that, the, that while we in our mortal selves are finite, the endurance of the world is something that many people find extremely reassuring and it gives the story, the larger story, continuity. Be a good ancestor, said the man who invented the polio vaccine, Jonas Salk. We can't all cure polio, but there's a huge amount of pride and satisfaction that comes with supporting the next generation. Bringing on the younger ones is a mood booster for both sides, and it might have other health benefits too. A few years ago, researchers at Arizona University found that older honeybees who took on the work of feeding baby bees reversed the signs of ageing in their brains. The older bees showed big improvements in cognition after researchers emptied out the hives and made them nurse the young. It hasn't been proved yet, but the leader of the study reckons what's true for bees could be true for humans. Getting involved with younger generations could take years off us. Succession planning is very important. And succession planning isn't trying to get someone just to take over. It's really getting someone to live that same uh, vision and dream that was uh, left by the elders, you know, some generations back and to move forward. And I think if the succession can include all that dream and all that belief, I think it's fantastic. Worries like a rocking chair, you can do it for hours, but it gets you nowhere. Don't worry about those boys, worry about your schoolwork. Everyone has a story, you just have to ask the right questions. 